You're listening to News9 Live podcast. I'm Neha. More than nine months after invading Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin has again signaled his intent to end the war. Putin has called for a quote-unquote potential settlement of the Ukraine question, asking quote-unquote all parties to agree with the realities on ground. With the lack of trust between Russia and the West, ruling out any diplomatic solution to the crisis so far, many experts warn that Putin's offer should not be seen as a sign of Russian weakness. Putin's remarks came in the backdrop of warnings by NATO that the conflict in Eastern Europe could, quote-unquote, spin out of control. Given that Moscow has continued its so-called special military operation in Ukraine for months, despite mounting costs and growing global backlash, does Putin really intend to move towards a ceasefire at this point? Or... Is there a more subtle ploy at work behind Putin's call for a potential settlement to end the conflict? I decode this in today's podcast with General Atta Hasnan. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Neha. So I'll start with a direct and often repeated question. What will it take for Putin to end the war? See, Neha, this war was predicted on 24th February when it broke out. To be a simplistic black and white affair, uh, probably leading to a victory uh, for the Russians. It turned out to be far more complex and is getting more complex by the day. So to predict a black and white result today is well nigh almost impossible. But let's try and look at, try and simplify some of the complexities. What Mr. Putin is essentially looking for is a way by which the eastward march of NATO into Russian mainland is put an end to. Will the will the will the will NATO, will the United States accept this, agree to this is a moot point. The second thing is, and which most people do not realize is the geostrategic angle, and that is the use of the Black Sea. You Thank see, you. Russia's usable ports are all on the Black Sea, uh, in the Ukraine area, Sevastopol, Odessa. Right, the Sea of Azov itself. This gives access to Russia through the Black Sea into the Mediterranean and through the Mediterranean into the waterways of the Middle East, which is a very which are very, very geostrategically important landmarks of the world, through which most of the energy moves, most of the energy resources move, through which most of the trade of the world moves. Russia without the Black Sea cannot survive. There has to be a guarantee by which the territories abounding or going around the Black Sea, Russia has access to them by whatever means, by whatever agreements that cannot be predicted at this moment. But there is no way that, for example, Russia can do away with Donbass. It can do away with Crimea. It can do away with the the northern coastline of the Black Sea. So Mr. Putin is essentially looking for Russia's future. He, anyone who understands your strategic and geopolitical affairs realizes that what NATO is after is to put Russia in a position of utter weakness, which is not acceptable to Mr. Putin, who has sworn that he's going to make Russia great again. And this is the moot point at the moment, current moment. How far should NATO go? in pushing Mr. Putin? How long can Mr. Putin last on the current environment? And lastly, 
how much can we as bystanders determine from the kind of information which is available to us today to see who is winning, who is leading, who is in the position of advantage and who is in the position of disadvantage today. Right, sir. Sir, in regard to his statement on a quote-unquote potential settlement to end the war, was the message aimed at the West or, or was it rather directed at domestic and regional audiences to quell growing dissent against Putin's war? See, Neha, the concept of victory and defeat has undergone a serious change over the years. It's not a question of uh, destroying one's economy, destroying one's army or adversary's army, eliminating the leadership, etc., which used to be the parameters uh, in the days gone past. Let's take our minds back to 1989-90, uh, when the first Gulf War or the second Gulf War in 2003, or if you take it back to the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, 1973 war, these are all black and white victories. Today, that kind of a victory and defeat is not possible through conventional operations. It seems almost um, uh, it seems almost impossible to actually determine that kind of a victory or defeat. So what Mr. Putin is very clear about is that uh, this is the moment to message, test the waters, send out messages and see what is the response, what is the reaction. He is also aware that most people are living in, a, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in an environment of uh, information deficit. Uh, Enough information is not available. Uh, disinformation actually rules the roost today. And uh, therefore, you have to go through the maze of all this disinformation to determine what the actual situation is. Mr. Putin is making use of this, exploiting this, uh, carrying out uh, messaging to get public opinion, determine public opinion, I don't think the situation at the moment, I for one the, felt that by February, this war should come to an end. Okay. Uh, at the moment, I'm not so encouraged to continue believing in what I felt or perceived a month, two months ago. Uh, we are into winter. I know Europe is very, very uncomfortable without the Russian energy at the moment. Uh, if anything happens, it is the pressure, public pressure. Uh, from uh, from Europe, which will determine the future, or Mr. Putin's capability to resist internal pressures from Russia. It's not as if dictatorially Mr. Putin can go ahead and do whatever he wishes. He knows that there will be a breakpoint, a point at which the Russian public itself will also respond. Right. Has that point arrived? That is a, a very difficult thing to determine at this moment. I would say the serious winter of Europe has still not come in. Perhaps let's give it a month more. And perhaps in the month of January, you may find something more definitive emerging in terms of this messaging which is going on. Right. So media coverage of Russian losses in the war has been extensive. What, if anything, would you say Putin has actually gained over the last 10 months of conflict? Nearly 10 months. First of all, this is a war in which information has again ruled the roost. Right. And uh, the availability of modern platforms for information sharing, and to the extent that many, many news agencies have been bought off, and therefore there is a, a news blanket 
about the actual situation on the ground and how much has Ukraine itself suffered, perhaps. We are aware that uh, Ukraine is under constant badgering at the moment in terms of its infrastructure. But it seems that uh, life continues quite normally in Ukraine. That is not possible. And to that extent, I think the Western world, NATO, is being unrealistic and trying to put across this kind of a picture to the rest of the world. I think the Russians, despite their losses, and they have lost, suffered uh, quite a bit of losses on the military front, they have not lost very much uh, in terms of their own infrastructure because it's a huge country. And anyway, this war is all on the border of, of Russia. It's fought inside Ukraine, but on the border of Russia. So it is Ukraine which has suffered tremendously in terms of infrastructure. The Russians have suffered military, militarily, large number of war casualties, a large lot of damage to the equipment, but a lot of it has been made up from um, by buying equipment from Iran, for example. Like yesterday's papers talk about Iranian attack drone attacks by the Russians using a large swarm of Iranian drones uh, with promises to make good a lot of other alternative weaponry to Iran. So the dynamics of this region of Eurasia are actually changing. And Russia may be sensing more, more than losses, may be sensing a sense of a, a, a degree of perception, perhaps, of a geopolitical advantage to an extent. So it's all a question of what Mr. Putin's mind is about at the moment, how he's perceiving this situation. But I think Russia has suffered. Yes. And uh, Mr. Putin may be forced at this juncture to be a changing course because it is becoming very clear that this war is militarily unwinnable. If this war has to be won or lost, it has to be in the economic, the energy, and the psychological domain more than anything else. Right, sir. So, given the ultimate failure of the 2014 ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine, what are the chances that another negotiated ceasefire would, you know, work to prevent conflict between the two sides for the foreseeable future? See, Ukraine is going to be hugely dependent on NATO and the West for its rebuilding. In case of a ceasefire, for its rebuilding. It's going to take a couple of hundred billion dollars to put together this country once again. Otherwise, it remains very, very vulnerable. We all realize what the consequences of war are, how Internally displaced people become so very vulnerable. Right in the heart of Europe, this is the largest country of Europe. Although its population is 44 million, but size-wise, this is the second largest country actually in, in Europe itself. You cannot leave it as vulnerable as that. So Ukraine, despite its excellent military performance, will remain a tool in the hands of NATO. And uh, to that extent, when if NATO wants ceasefire, then so be it. Ceasefire will very much be there. Okay. There will be attempts at resistance of NATO control. Ukrainians are very fiercely independent, and particularly after uh, the kind of performance they have, they have um, carried out in, uh, militarily, their confidence will be uh, very, very high. So the chances of breakdown of ceasefire are very much prevalent there. And uh, it's not. it all depends also on how and in what manner the agreement pans out. Is it going to be about a assurance from NATO that they will not press for a Ukrainian membership? Is it a condition which Russia lays down that uh, Ukrainian membership of NATO is unacceptable? 
These are some of the issues which will emerge in terms of strengthening or weakening the ceasefire. But I do believe that the ceasefire will not be a very firm ceasefire. There will be lots and lots of breaches. After one year of war fighting, trust deficit complete, there will be a lot of give and take to establish that trust all over again and try and have a failed safe ceasefire. Right. So if there is scope for the same in the future, should Ukraine still pursue NATO membership? See, uh, the entire reason for this war actually was this whole issue of the membership of NATO for Ukraine. Right. Uh, it was related to the eastward push by NATO, not knowing what are the limits of that push and what will it finally lead to. It was very akin to the Treaty of Versailles, 1919, where the Allies had no idea that pushing Germany into all kinds of impractical conditionalities would actually push Germany into, into becoming a, a, a virtually an, a devil and, and uh, initiating all the, the necessities of the Second World War, which had happened 20 years later. So this is exactly the thing here. Should the Allies, or rather in this case, should, the NATO, should NATO continue to pursue its uh, single-minded uh, you know, perception that it needs to continue pushing Russia 30 years after the end of the Cold War. I think a lot will depend on the analyses of the various think tanks, the Pentagon and the State Department of the United States, European, the Union itself, its security think tanks to understand what are the limits to which NATO should push for membership as far as the former states of the Soviet Union are concerned. Right. I think the answer will say you need not take formal membership of Ukraine, but link Ukraine to NATO in a manner that for the next 50 years, perhaps Ukraine is bounden to NATO completely. And that's possible economically, psychologically. After all, this is a country now which is, is, is infrastructure is completely destroyed. So I think the third option exists. Instead of my saying, yes, Ukrainians should, should press for membership, or should not press for membership, I would say a third option exists where neither. What you do is let Ukraine be rebuilt by NATO and to that extent, get Ukraine on its side and make sure that it continues to work on all the non-military aspects to keep Ukraine away from the influence of Russia. That may not be very easy. Lastly, Lots of compromises will have to come into this. The Russians will have to be given the access of the Black Sea through various territories of Ukraine. This is something which the NATO will just have to accept. And Ukraine itself will have to accept. So these are going to, this is going to be an awkward kind of a situation where sovereignty of a nation is going to be sort of uh, defined and, and in, a, in slightly different ways than what is conventionally acceptable to the rest of the world. Right. So finally, do you see an imminent threat of conflict expanding in Eastern Europe as NATO has warned? I do feel that uh, if this season, if this war does not come to an end, there is the threat and potentiality of this coming to an Armageddon kind of a uh, 
scenario because uh, so far perhaps a degree of rationality continued to be exercised but hereafter rationality may be thrown to the winds and we don't know what may happen within russia the predictability of nato is far higher but the predictability in terms of russia the status of mr putin and um, the rest of the leadership may be questionable and therefore uh, persisting with this kind of a situation maybe may cause some common concern for those who are concerned about the stability of europe and right. stability of europe is very very important for the stability of the world so to my mind i think all parties to this conflict should work harder towards eliminating the causes and looking for a ceasefire in the next one or two months right i'll wrap up on that note thank you general husnain for joining me happy sunday everyone thank you